Welcome back to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and History Press, where I, Jonathan Foster, get to talk to authors of history books and nerd out a little bit. Today I'm speaking with Nancy Stearns Tice. Nancy is the author of the new title, A Tour on the Underground Railroad Along the Ohio River, which is now available. Running for 664 miles along Kentucky's border, the Ohio River provided a remarkable opportunity for the enslaved to escape to free soil in Indiana and Ohio. The river beckoned fugitive slave Henry Bibb onto a steamboat at Madison, Indiana, headed to Cincinnati, where he discovered the Underground Railroad. Upriver from Cincinnati, a lantern signal high on a hill from the Rankin House in Ripley, Ohio, stirred others to flee for freedom. These stories and more along the borderland of the Ohio River also served as the setting for Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became an inspiration of human resistance. Author Nancy Tice takes readers on a tour through American history to places of courage and sacrifice. Nancy Stearns Tice is a native of Oldham County, where she grew up on the family farm and married her childhood sweetheart. She has degrees in education, biology, and environmental studies, and has directed several nonprofits. Currently the executive director of the Oldham County Historical Society, she has written history columns for the Louisville Courier-Journal and the Oldham Era, and received numerous recognitions for her various endeavors. She is an avid naturalist and historian who believes that knowing your community and the people, places, and living things, past and present around you, helps you understand your place in the world. The perfect history press and Arcadia author. All right, so Nancy, this is a history book that you can read at home like I did, or you Uh can take on the road as it is a guidebook, historical travel guide. How did you come up with the idea to write the book in that way? Yeah, we started at the Oldham County History Center where I work. Uh, I came in here in 2004, and we had an abundance of slave documents, and uh, that is just when the National Park Service started a program called the National Underground Railroad Network. And so everything was very new, and the discovery of slavery in this county, for me, which I grew up here, was kind of an eye-opener. So we started following the life of this man named Henry Bibb, uh, who was a slave, and I'd never heard of him before, but I actually Googled him. And uh, from that, we wrote some grants and started a program, an archaeology program, on a site where he lived. And we used an archaeologist who had just worked at the Freedom Center in Cincinnati and installed the John Anderson slave pen. So all of this is very new, and we started this archaeology program. And as I went on in uh, 2018, we've had a lot of people participate, and I realized that people who come in the museum, we have a very nice museum here, and we show them slave papers and all of that, but there's really not a whole lot of information about the Ohio River and the crossing of people, freedom seekers there, uh, particularly on the Kentucky side. So I just invited some friends in 2018, and we got in uh, two buses we rented, and we just started visiting some sites. And I learned a lot on that trip, and it gave me a perspective about what the Ohio River would have been like 200 years ago and how connected, which I had no idea, that all these people, besides just the people who were freeing the freedom seekers, the conductors who who lived up and down the Ohio River, uh, and it was just a real eye-opener. So I took about eight friends. We visited sites I had not visited before, and they had not visited before. And uh, my friends were really great, but I realized that to tell the story better, there have been so many museums and sites since the National Park Service started their program, 
that have researched really, really hard about these unknown people from our past. And uh, I thought, boy, it would be better just to write a book and identify these sites where we went and visit these small museums and places now that are with the National Park Service. Um, and, and that's what I did. So I wrote that book, signed a contract with you all last January, and then uh, spent the next six to eight months looking at all these sites, visiting museums, making connections. And it was remarkable. Um, it just changed. It gave me a whole new respect for the people that are unknown so many times and sacrifices for our democracy that have these wonderful stories that never get told. Yeah. So that's and, the way it started. And you really, you kind of start off because the Ohio river is a character in the story itself because you, you kind of start off as the river wasn't the river you think of today. It was shallower at places. I mean, you even have, you know, you talk about the shallows later on in the book, you know, as a portion of the river, yeah. but they had to deepen the river for the steamboats. Uh, the different canals connected with the river, even going into Cincinnati uh, to make mill runs, yeah. even for the mills going into the city. And all of this, yeah. I feel like, with the beginnings of the Underground Railroad along the river, I feel like it was brought, the railroad itself maybe was hastened along at a quicker pace by the greater need by the canals and the steamboat industries along the river because of the amount of the enslaved people that are now being brought into the area, even where they're supposed to be quote-unquote, free states. Am I correct in that feeling? Did that help hasten right. about the, the railroad? Yes, the commerce. Yeah, the river, uh, it, I mean, and there's sometimes in the year, in certain points, you could almost, like Madison, you were talking about the shallows, where you could almost cross it with a horse and wagon and swim across. And uh, there was a real bad drought in Madison, I think it was in the 1830s, where people literally could walk across. So the river was much different, much smaller, half the size we know today. And um, the invention of the steamboat really changed the commerce on the river. So all at once, you had flatboats going down the Ohio River. And then when the Portland Canal in Louisville was constructed, and I think that was like in the 1830s, which was the first canal, that for the first time allowed steamboats then to take their goods. They would stop at Portland before that, but then when the canal was uh, made, they could just go do a straight shot down to uh, New Orleans. I think in 1845, the steamboats in Louisville, um, there were 1,476 steamboats and 168 flat and packet boats that went through the Louisville-Portland Canal. The commerce of that year was over a million dollars collected in toll. No, I'm sorry. That was a million dollars collected in tolls. So with all this trafficking and all these boats, it made it even a better opportunity for people uh, who were enslaved to escape. Um, so here you have 664 miles of is what this book covers. So it goes from Evansville, Indiana, to Ripley, Ohio, on the free side, free soil. And then the other side is all Kentucky, which is the slave soil. And uh, all of this trade and commerce, of course, needed a lot of slave labor. Plus, uh, people uh, made money off slaves by selling them. And uh, on the slave side, you could every county collected uh, taxes on slaves. The slave trade became enormous, not just for the cotton fields in the south, but also for all this commerce up and down the Ohio River. So... Uh, 
I mean, I was even amazed where slave owners would allow their slaves to cross the river to work on uh, some of these steamboat steamship yards, um, and then they would come home at night. So, uh, of course, the punishment for a runaway slave was brutal. And um, and then a lot of the people who were enslaved, you know, if you cross those that river on the uh, free soil, you were still leaving your family behind, and slaveholders knew that. So that that is what kept them at bay. Yeah. Well, the so it was important for them to escape to Canada because there was freedom there. But and you mentioned them crossing over to you know free soil. But the you know after 1850 with the you know the slave code the the act that was enacted in 1850 that kind of changes things, right? Because then they you know could be marshals could go yeah, and the, take them the, the, right the and that's. State. That's the one, right, that's the one thing. Uh, people on the uh, on the free soil side in what is now Indiana and Ohio and uh, Illinois, they, particularly in the more northern reaches, they realized that probably a lot of the people that had moved in the community could have been refugees, slaves, but they became part of the community. So they didn't really see the brutality of slavery sold that people split and, and families broken up and people tortured. Uh, until these, uh, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed slaveholders to come across the river. And, and that was a game changer. Uh, a lot of people who were uh, fugitives went farther north into Canada. But, and then a lot of them, uh, you know, when they were taken back, they were taken back under such brutal conditions, these small towns were shocked. So, um, it was it was a game changer because it was in their backyard. People people were suddenly who believed in you know who lived on the free soil side really got to see what happened when a person was enslaved. Hmm. And in the state of Kentucky, one you know one of the first stories you come across in the book is the story of jo- Josiah Henson, um, and it's one of the main yeah. stories. And uh, I won't tell all yeah. the stories, but I kind of want to highlight him, and especially because just so many firsts and so many connections he makes. Would you tell us a bit about him? Yes. Uh, well, what happened with Josiah Henson is that um, he was the model for Harriet Beecher Stowe's famous book, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so his life became... Um, he gradually got his freedom, but uh, what he did, and I was trying to, I'm trying to look in the book and read the section. Um, what he did was he was enslaved up in Maryland, and um, he was slaved by, he was enslaved by a family, let me look up that section real quick, named Riley, and he was entrusted, he, he had a brutal, brutal, brutal uh, childhood. He saw his father sold to the southern slave market when his uh, mother was being raped and his father was tortured. And then he grew up and as a little boy had his arm broken for getting beat for something. It's a, he's an amazing character anyway that he survived all that. And But he believed in the human soul and the human spirit. He believed in people. And when his owner uh, his owner's name was Isaac Rowley, uh, said he had a brother down in Owensboro, Amos. And so he told Josiah, go down to, uh, to uh, 
Owensboro, near Owensboro, and take some of these slaves with you. And he entrusted uh, Josiah to take the slaves with him. Well, they stopped at the Cincinnati port, and there were a lot of people there at that time on the Underground Railroad, and they tried to convince him not to, to, to take everyone that he had and to escape. And Josiah said, no, I'm an honest man. And true to his word, he took these people down. But um, the long story short was his brother, uh, Amos, he stayed there and worked on the farm. And Isaac said if he took these people down, he could get his freedom. But uh, he reneged on the bargain, and uh, he tried to sell Josiah down in the slave markets in New Orleans. But when Josiah went down to New Orleans, one of the Riley's sons went with him, and he got uh, sick. And Josiah nursed him back to health. And Josiah ended up back in Owensboro, not being sold at the market because this man was depending on him to help him through his sickness. And also his wife and four children, Josiah's, were in uh, Owensboro, outside Owensboro. But Josiah knew that he would be sold. One day would come and be sold again. So that's when he fled. And he ended up with his wife and his four children. They ended up in Canada. And he wrote his narratives. And he became very famous, uh, the Queen of England. He went to England to talk about slavery. Uh, he was just a brilliant man. And uh, because of his honesty and uh, what he did, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe heard about him and invited him to her house. At that time, she'd moved back to Maryland. And she was so impressed by him that she wrote this whole book around his character and his stamina and his belief in people and uh, faith in humanity. So here you have an example, which many, many people were like him, that uh, in spite of all the circumstances, they survived and they went forward and they just wanted to live their lives. He, he also uh, is on the currency in Canada as well, I believe. He's also on the what? Currency in Canada as well. I believe, uh, if I remember from the book, you said he becomes the first uh, a person of African descent to be on currency in the country of Canada. Right, that's right. Uh, he was a celebrate. He was celebrated. He um, he was on the first post postage stamp, wasn't he, in the United States? I believe later uh, became the first black person to be featured on a Canadian postage stamp. That's right, oh, okay. in nineteen eighty three. In nineteen eighty three, right. So. Sure. And then there's other people that Harriet Beecher Stowe, when she went to Cincinnati, uh, there, she, um, her father went to teach at the Lane Seminary, and it's there that she became exposed to slavery firsthand. And uh, in that experience, uh, she met her future husband, who was on the Underground Railroad, who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And, uh, and Lane Seminary was a very unusual place, too, because uh, they talked straight on about the issue of slavery during the time. One thing I want to ask about, too, though, is there is, of course, the danger for the enslaved person uh, that's attempting uh -huh. to escape on the railroad. But what danger is, though, is there for those that are aiding them or the conductors that we call them? Uh, what happens yeah. to those people that might be caught? Aiding yeah, we had a lot freedom? of uh, one that I covered in the book was a Calvin Fairbank. Uh, he was captured many times. He actually spent more than. 15 years in Kentucky penitentiaries uh, for helping people escape. Uh, so they were usually, uh, if they were caught, they were thrown in jail. And of course they were in the Kentucky side. Another man who was, uh, who was very interesting, his name Elijah Anderson. He's a, he was in Madison 
he was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and he helped numerous people escape. And he got caught helping 11 fugitives cross the river and go north, uh, and they put him in the Kentucky State Penitentiary again at Frankfurt. And on the day that he was supposed to be released, he was found dead in his cell. Uh, the jails back then, Henry Bibb, the man that I talked about that we, um, that we celebrate here a lot. There's a bunch that we do, but he was thrown in a potent, the penitentiary and describes the horrible conditions that people had. Both men and women, uh, were in the same penitentiary, often separated. The Louisville penitentiary, the jail there was just unspeakable, uh, they ate rotten food. They were uh, put forth on hard labor. In the state penitentiary, people who were uh, either runaways or or conductors were forced to work in um, all kinds. The hemp houses, which was full of dust, much like coal dust. So, you know, Henry Bibb is an example. He died uh, in his late 30s, uh, and he had suffered so many different beatings throughout his story that um, he probably lived a short life, but we'll never know. The, the interesting thing that I found is that all these stories that I write about, anyone can, can look at them. There were over 100 narratives written by people themselves who were enslaved, like Henry Bibb. Mm -hmm. And you can uh, just look them up online and find their actual narratives. Uh, and so it, it was all documented. The surprise for me was that I grew up here in Oldham County, and I didn't know these stories, and I didn't know where these places were. Another person that uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe describes is Eliza Harris, and she uh, is the one, not Margaret Garner at Cincinnati, but Eliza Harris upriver near Ripley, Ohio, is the one that escaped with her babes and arms crossing the Ohio River on ice floes. And she made it. And uh, not only did she make it, but when she got her baby to a safe, a safe place, a year later she came back and disguised herself to get more people. That's another thing that I felt people who had been enslaved had such a uh, passion to help others. They often put themselves at risk. John Parker, who lived at Ripley, Ohio, he was in foundry and ironwork. He had his family there. He was an escaped slave, came up from from the New Orleans area, came up to New Albany, and then landed in uh, Ripley. And at many, many times, he would help people cross there because right there at Maysville was the road. It was a big turnpike down to Lexington. And uh, so it was a crossing place for fugitives. And he helped many people, and his family were often in danger, uh, as well as John Rankin, who lived up top of the hill from John Parker, and uh, he said he and his family, were, they were engaged. He was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he said he, he helped over 3,000 people escape. Um, so the numbers started to grow more and more. As more people fled in all these newspapers, like um, John Burney uh, in the Cincinnati area had his own paper. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as more people found out, more people attempted to flee. And they call it the Underground Railroad because it, it happened around the same time that the railroads became popular. So they could use the same vernacular words, but they used it to describe safe houses and places to go. And a lot of people think that Underground Railroad means things were underground, but it was really not underground. It was just going from place to place, word of mouth. Um, I found that steamboats were huge in helping people escape. There are numerous tales 
about people that escaped through steamboats. Um, they would hop on the boat. Like I said, some owners would let them go, like Henry Bibb, William Gatewood, who enslaved him. First time Henry Bibb escaped was when he asked Gatewood if he could work over in the pork houses in Madison, the pork houses is pig meat houses, and he let him do it, and that's the first time he hopped on a steamboat and went up through Cincinnati. Um, the other thing that I found was people were all knew each other. George the Baptiste, who was in Madison, it, uh, he was uh, African-American who was free. He ended up down in Madison, and he helped people till it became so dangerous, and then he went north up to Detroit. Well, he became friends with Henry Bibb, and uh, they began operating. Henry Bibb had raised money for a fugitive colony in Canada. And so uh, George Baptiste would help people, and he would take them to Bibb. And Baptiste even owned a boat that crossed the lakes there to go over to the Canadian side. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, she knew John Rankin, the man I talked about that assisted over 3,000 people at Ripley, of which now is a National Park Service site. So uh, I, the stories become so numerous, uh, and people knew what was happening. They knew each other. Um, you know, and I think uh, when you look at Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, it's based on the life of Margaret Garner. And um, she tried to cross, she crossed the Ohio River there at Newport to go to Cincinnati. She was captured, and she killed her young baby in order uh, so the baby wouldn't go back into slavery. Mm. Uh, and there's, and so on the um, really beautiful uh, murals are on the uh, Newport side facing the Ohio River. And there's a beautiful mural of the Garner family crossing the ice on the Ohio River going to Cincinnati. Um, these relationships were really interesting, too, because here you have the big town of Cincinnati, which was free soil. And they had a large black population. And people who were fleeing could go into that and sort of disappear. Uh, Levi and Catherine Coffin, who were Quakers, uh, they started up in Newport and they went down to Cincinnati and worked with Harriet Beecher Stowe and uh, so many other people in, in assisting people across the river or coming up from the river from Louisville. Uh, Louisville was a big slave trade city. And uh, one of the horrific things I pulled out from the book were these want ads in uh, in Louisville newspapers. It would say wanted 250 Negroes, men or women, um, will pay top price. I put that in the book, too. So mainly what I did was I tried to uh, assist people to go to places where they could actually feel the um, energy of that place and go back in time and honored all of these people that sacrificed so much for democracy. Um, uh, of course, at the Oldham County History Center where I work, we have a lot of slave documents that are very rare, so many people haven't seen them. And um, we have one of our houses is the uh, James and Amanda Mount were slaveholders, and we have bounty hunter documents that show that they signed to go after runaway slaves. Um, the National Park Service has documented a lot of... Uh, places on the north side of the Ohio River, but on the south side, uh, we Kentuckians still haven't uh, brought to light as much as we should uh, the whole capacity of slavery that was going on here in the slave trading. So basically in Kentucky, you had two sites. You had the Lexington Turnpike Road, where you get off the river and you go down to Lexington in the Bluegrass area, which was a big public auction site for slaves. 
And then you had the holding jails and whatnot in Louisville where these slave traders would go out into the counties and buy slaves that people didn't want or couldn't feed or they wanted to make money off the people. And they would hold them in the jails and then send them on down to New Orleans. Um, so it's uh, we one of the sites on the book that I thought was remarkable is one we have in Oldham County. The John Martin Taylor and his wife, Elizabeth Reeves Taylor, they had 300 acres and a very, very beautiful mansion right on the Ohio River at Westport. And then they would go down to their cotton plantation of 10,000 acres in Arkansas, where they, uh, where they enslaved 180 people. So they were some of the largest slave owners on record, particularly for Arkansas. And uh, they would be going back and forth up and down the river, uh, taking uh, enslaved people back and forth to work cotton fields or to work the 300-acre farm here. Wow. And I think that's an amazing story of um, how the river was used, you know, for slave trafficking. Yeah. And you did put those stories um, in the book. You have stories about yeah. slave owners, slave traders, um, slave yeah. people who went out to capture slaves. So, I mean, you have the whole narrative there, and it really tells that story and pushes the story of how quick we started to go towards the Civil War and how this was an issue for, yeah. towards the Civil War. Yes, it was, a, it was an issue. Slavery was a, such a huge issue, and people that, that decided to invest, to invest in human chattel the slavery, uh, they didn't want to give up that money of investment, even though they were humans, and they became very selfish. And even the court system, anybody who owned slaves had to pay property taxes, just like if you had a cow or a horse. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that went into the county, uh, you know, the county coffers, right? It supported the local population. And people uh, in the court system, if you were in a slave county, uh, if you were a jailer, for instance, like James Mount here in our uh, here in our building that's on the Park Service, uh, he actually it would sell runaway slaves at the courthouse door. So that money, if if runaway slaves, if no one came to to claim them, then they would be sold at the courthouse door. Or if the slave owner came to uh, get that particular person, they would have to pay a fine. And if no one showed up. And if there was a cheap enough price, even the jailer might purchase that enslaved person and hold them for a slave trader to come through the county and then take them to the Louisville holding jails and then send them down river. Another thing people don't realize is there were, uh, you know, like you had asked me, Johnny, about the uh, up and down the river about um, all of these steamboats and stuff. Well, the steamboats ran on uh, on wood, mm-hmm. fuel. And up and down the river, since it was shallow, every farm up and down the river just about had a landing. So, like between Madison, Indiana, and Louisville, Kentucky, there was probably 35 landings. And wow. these boats that were that were um, carrying all this cargo, because they were trying to sell it and get it down to the New Orleans, they would stop at these landings to buy wood. So people who uh, had enslaved people would use those laborers you know, to chop wood and chop all the trees and have it ready to sell to the steamboats. And they often were in a race, the steamboats themselves, just to uh, pick up the next load of commerce, whether it be meat, whether it be uh, hay or tobacco or bourbon, uh, because the first ship down on that landing got that and they got to sell it at the port. So you have this tremendous race going on as well. Uh, And, of course, you have people being sold down the river. The best example of a 
of a jail is the one, the Freedom Center is a wonderful place to visit in Cincinnati. It's right between the uh, Bengals and the Red Stadium, right on the river. And they have that Anderson Slave Pen Jail, which is the life of a slave trader. He lived up in Mason County, Kentucky. And the archaeologist we work with, she was responsible for uh, deconstruction and then helping to reconstruct the story of John Anderson and his slave pen jail. So they do a great job of talking about the slave trade. It, it was re- it's really good. When we do our archaeology program at the uh, Bibb site every summer, uh, we go up to the Freedom Center just to look at the Anderson slave pen jail because uh, there were those kind of places more than likely all over Kentucky. And this one's so well documented, it shows how the trade goes. Um, the other thing that impressed me is how beautiful the river is, except for certain areas where uh, places have let large industry come in. And the yeah. Ohio River is incredibly beautiful. I mean, uh, particularly the drive between uh, Cincinnati and Ripley, Ohio, they've gone to great lengths to preserve that natural corridor. And on the Kentucky side, at that particular place, it's really beautiful. Um, all these small towns have taken great pride in redoing their towns as little river towns. Uh, a lot of uh, 19th century buildings, these small museums, I mean, they're precious. They have great food. Uh, as you're going along and learning these stories, uh, they're just great. We, I mean, we, we had a blast, my husband and I, going back and writing this book. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Uh, how great and how much money these small towns have spent. And, you know, they need the tourism and they want to tell the story because a lot of people have been researching this. My favorite book was one by a woman that's up in uh, Maysville. She's a retired school teacher, Carolyn Miller. And I used her book, The Grapevine Dispatch. I mean, she has done an amazing job of writing about uh, people who were enslaved and their stories of escape or people who were conductors. Um, she's fantastic. And, um, there are other places I really like, <coughs> excuse me, as well, up in the Harriet Beecher Stowhouse, I think I mentioned, and then down in Louisville, uh, great story at Farmington and Locust, and Locust Grove. They preserve these historic homes, um, and Farmington, which is right in the middle, right close to a, an expressway, they've, uh, they have, um, protected that area and that house. Abraham Lincoln visited there, the Speed family, and they had a hemp plantation. And what they would do, and all this hemp production, uh, they were making bags to send down to the cotton trade because they would throw all of these, you know, all the cotton into these hemp bags. So um, it's it's so uh, connected. The Locust Grove has a great story about the slave York who saved uh, many times the Lewis and Clark expedition. He was enslaved by Meriwether Lewis. And his story of, uh, of, of fortitude and his honesty, and it's such an inspiration just to look at the life of York and his contribution to Lewis and Clark. And he was, he was treated so poorly when they came back from that expedition. Uh, he was separated from his wife. Lewis took him to Missouri. Uh, and it's such a sad story. So that's a good place, too, Locust Grove, and it's beautiful there. Uh, the Muhammad Ali Museum in Louisville is great because not only is it a story of one of the people that I truly admire, Muhammad Ali, but it also talks about, it brings up civil rights today and, uh, you know, how things change today, how are they different from 160 years ago. 
the struggle for freedom and democracy is one that is, is always cost a lot of sacrifice. And I think lastly on this book, I would say that it's just a tribute of people who have given so much. I mean, our county today is what it is because of all these people we don't even recognize that lived here and existed here, who lost their lives here, who were separated from their families. Um, and uh, we try to go through our records and pull out the names of slaves. And then uh, we have them in different parts of our museum just to acknowledge they existed. So um, the corridor, you know, I, what I want people to do is just to take the book and uh, read about some of the people they might might have heard of and then visit these places and, you know, have a good time, take their families, talk about um, all these people that should have been in our history books a long time ago that haven't been. You've definitely done your part. Nancy, thank you for taking time today to talk to me about this. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate it, Johnny. And um, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate the fact that you read the book, too. Yes, ma'am. No problem at all. It was a pleasure to read it. Of course, I want to thank you all for listening. And you can buy Nancy's book at ArcadiaPublishing.com or at your local bookstore. Remember, if you like the podcast, be sure to rate and review. If you have a suggestion for a future episode or a question, you can send me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I, of course, want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the theme song again. And remember, you can find them at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project on Facebook. We will see you again next week for another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press.